This is Barry Zalma, Zalma's Insurance Fraud Letter, Volume 25, Number 13, for July 15, 2021. The letter starts out with three types of insurance fraud. Post-dating a loss, paper property, and health insurance fraud. The post-dating a loss type of fraud is a technique that involves a loss at a time when an individual has no or inadequate insurance. Following the loss, the individual applies for insurance or increases the limits of existing coverage. After a period of time, usually several days or a week, a fraudulent claim is submitted for a loss reported to have happened after the new policy came into effect. Failure of the insurer or its agent or broker to see the property, especially if the insurer has included the items on its schedule, before issuance of a policy is an invitation to this type of fraud. There's an unwritten exclusion in every insurance policy that requires every covered loss to be fortuitous, that is, be the result of a contingent or unknown event happening within the period the policy is in existing. Attempting to post-date an auto loss is often difficult since there's usually a police report and if there is a police report, it becomes impossible. Insurance policies typically come into effect at 12.01 a.m. standard time on the day the policy is issued. If a person has an auto accident, fire, or theft at 10 a.m., he may go to an insurance agent, purchase a policy that goes into effect at 12.01 a.m. that day, and make claim on the new policy. Because the insurance fraud perpetrator will report that the loss occurred the day after the policy date, this type of scheme usually fails. When there is evidence that the insured knew about the incident before the policy was acquired, or that there exists evidence when it actually happened, like a police or fire report, this type of fraud will fail if the insurer does a thorough investigation. Paper property is a type of fraud where a claim for the loss of property that never existed or was never owned by the insured. It can be the most difficult type of stage loss to defeat. Paper property can appear in a stage loss or in a legitimate claim, where paper property is used to inflate the claim amount. In the presentation of the claim, the insured produces a receipt, usually an original or a duplicate, or an appraisal. The document is either fraudulent, examples include the use of computers or even whiteout paint and a photocopier, to change the name of the owner or represent the value of an item owned by another individual. For an example, an insured who purchased a jewelry at a department store on a credit card took the jewelry to an appraisal, obtained an appraisal 
of the value of the item, then return the jewelry for full credit as reported as stolen. The jewelry, no longer in the insured's possession, was then insured by means of the appraisal and a loss was reported shortly thereafter. The receipt presented to the insurer was legitimate, and if the receipt was not verified with the vendor, the fact that it was returned and is still in inventory at the vendor will never be discovered. Health insurance fraud is probably the most prominent of all frauds perpetrated in the United States today. And because much of health insurance is part of federal government programs like Medicare and Medicaid, it is more thoroughly investigated than other types of insurance fraud. Surveys show that it is usually the claimant who perpetrates the fraud as opposed to a health care provider employers, or attorneys. The most common fraudulent activity is a false statement or omission of information that is lying about the severity of an injury or failing to mention a pre-existing condition. There are also cases of staged fraud in medical insurance, such as the non-existent trip and fall where an uninjured person reports slipping and falling. Staged accidents are often detected because of the willingness of the claimant to settle for a reasonable sum. A study conducted by an insurer in Southern California compared auto accidents with resulting objective injuries with those that produced only subjective, that is, whiplash or soft tissue injuries. For the objective injuries, it was found that 50% were suffered by occupants of the at-fault vehicle and 50% by occupants of the not-at-fault vehicle. For soft tissue injuries, however, only 8% were suffered by occupants of the at-fault vehicle. What that suggests, of course, is that a substantial number of soft tissue injury claims are suspicious It is also interesting to note the results of a study in Bulgaria where there was no right to sue for injuries resulting from automobile accidents at the time and no claims of soft tissue injuries were reported to the state health insurance system. This does not mean that people do not suffer actual soft tissue injuries. It means that such claims of injury require a thorough investigation. There's another article in the issue called The Public Adjuster and Fraud, where the fraud letter explains that every profession has the occasional crook. And when a public insurance adjuster exceeds his or her authority and attempts to defraud an insurer on behalf of the adjuster's client, the standard concealment or fraud provision precludes the insureds from obtaining any recovery under their policies as the claims submitted by their public adjuster in his capacity of an agent were fraudulent. 
This is a case called Astoria Quality Drugs versus United Pacific. And a case called Chubb versus Consoli, where Chubb was allowed full recovery of the claims paid after proof that the public adjuster had presented a fraudulent claim. The Texas legislature has statutorily made a contract that is void for illegality under the common law, enforceable or voidable at the option of the least culpable party, the insured, when a person contracts with the insured to perform services as a public insurance adjuster but does not have a license. In U.S. versus Lem, a scheme to defraud insurers was defeated with the testimony of a putative public adjuster. He explained to the trial court that the arson and insurance fraud activities underlying the conviction of various defendants resulted from fire to fire. But a general scenario was summarized by Eugene P. Gamst, the government's chief witness, who was a public adjuster licensed in Minnesota. The government's case showed that at some point in the early 1970s, Gamps began mis mixing his legitimate adjustment activities with arson, eventually becoming the center of an arson ring alleged to have existed from April 1, 1975 to September 1, 1978. The basic mode of operation was that Gamps, or occasionally another co-conspiracy, would recruit an individual to start an arson fire for insurance proceeds. Gamps would instruct the individual how to start the fire, how to act, and what to tell the authorities. After the fire, Gamps would pose as a legitimate public adjuster of an accidental fire. Occasionally, Gamps would also act as a private contractor and repair the fire damage in order to obtain a larger portion of the insurance proceeds. The roles of the other conspirators included providing seed money for the purchases of property, locating property for burning, providing property to be burned, preparing and torching the property, and recruiting others to the scheme that resulted eventually in convictions. The full article contains further details about some of the public adjuster schemes that resulted in arrests, conviction, or losses of claims. In addition, the uh, issue of Ziffel, Zalma's insurance fraud, contains an article about a recent decision of the United States District Court for the District of Michigan called An Arsonist with Chutzpah tries to get out of jail because of COVID-19 and fails because there was nothing wrong with him and there was no reason physically to say that he had any bigger chance of contracting COVID-19 than any other human being and that there was no reason 
to allow him to escape his 60-month sentence for an arson for profit. The court concluded that none of the defendant's concerns were on the CDC list of underlying medical conditions for which people were at an increased risk for severe illness from the coronavirus. Additionally, the defendant pointed to the Bureau of Prisons website as proof that Morgantown, where he was incarcerated, is not taking proper coronavirus precautions because of the number of cases increased from 74 to 121 over the three days of December. Defendant, it found, had not shown that he was at a heightened risk and he belongs in jail since there is no type of insurance fraud that's more evil than arson for profit because firefighters and are injured and die putting out such fires and neighbors are injured or die by the spread of intentionally set and accelerated fires. The July 15 issue also, as usual, contains a list of health insurance fraud convictions and a list of convictions by other than health insurance fraud and describes some of the publications provided by the insurance claims library available at my website, zalma.com. The full issue of Zalma's Insurance Fraud Letter for July 15, 2021 is available with a link on my blog at zalma.com slash blog and on LinkedIn. And if you subscribe, the entire issue will be delivered to you by email. Thank you for your attention.